ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, please welcome David Francis. Wow, you guys. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, it is so great to be here with all of you. Thank you, Noel and Skylight. Thank you, Michelle and Stacy and Amanda and everyone at Penn uh, for co-sponsoring this event with us. Um, when we were planning the publication of this book and we were eyeing a fall date, um, as we were looking forward into the schedule, we thought, well, geez, that's the end of an, uh, of an election cycle. Um, what a perfect time for an atmospheric and a beautifully written and a completely immersive novel because everyone's going to want a little break. Um, we weren't wrong, um, but it feels a bit more severe now. So um, I'm glad you're here because we're going to Calgon you away <laughs> to an Australian horse farm that is beautiful and fascinating and interesting. We're going to introduce you to the idea of hanging dresses from trees where you can pin your hopes and your prayers. Um, not your tax returns, please. Um, anything you want that's going to, um, you know, make all of this hopefully better and interesting for everyone in the room. And if none of that works, you get tacos and cake. Um, <laughs> And if that doesn't help, then I don't know what possibly could. So, uh, David, why don't, why don't you begin? Thank you. Thank you, Dan. And thank you all for coming. It's so um, affecting just to look out and see all these faces from different parts of my life. And this novel is a lot about home and where home is and finding home. And I realize recently, um, even more recently, then I imagined that LA is really my home. Despite what's going on in this country, the writing community here is so nurturing. And I look out and I see all my writer buddies and people from my writing group and my book group and um, people I admire very much um, are out here um, whose novels I've read and some of whom are published by Counterpoint, um, people who teach. And it's really um, a wonderful thing for me to have be a, an immigrant um, in, a, in a city and have found a new home amongst that community. So I, I really appreciate you all. And I know this is a weird time to be um, talking about things other than politics. And I know we're all having trouble getting out of our beds even. So I really am grateful that you were able to come out and support me and support literature and support this wonderful bookstore and Penn Center USA. And thank you, Penn, um, for sponsoring this. Jamie Wolf. Uh, yes, I, I remember her name, Michelle, Frankie, and, and the staff. Um, I, I really appreciate your help. Thank you. And, and, and also specifically to Counterpoint for, for really um, championing writers from the West. I mean, I'm from further west, but I, I've been here a long time. And uh, it, it, what Counterpoint has done for so many of us is really a wonderful thing. So I, I thank Counterpoint also. Thank you, Dan. Um, as Dan mentioned, I've written a weird novel set far away from here, but it's partially also uh, set in Laurel Canyon, uh, which isn't where I live, so it's not autobiographical. But it is where I used to live, so maybe it is. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit 
from the very beginning of the novel, and then Dan and I are going to chat for a bit uh, about it. But just to set it up, it's about a guy, uh, an Australian lawyer of all things, who is called back to his family farm in Australia for one last Christmas with his ailing mother, and um, weird shit has happened down there. So he leaves his girlfriend up in the canyon and and heads, heads home. Um, and the first little bit I'll read is him on the plane, um, thinking about what he's going to and what has happened there. In the middle of the night, that bloody Sharon's car was up in flames. My mother shouted down the phone. I imagine her moving through the paddocks in the dark towards the distant flicker, the way she knows the land by heart. The shapes of the concrete water troughs, the shadows of the rabbit warrens, and a siren wailing the fire truck already on the highway and my mother breathless by the windmill. She'd leave the gate open, let the wild-eyed cattle shuffle through the clatter of their hooves. The shadows of those three black horses retreating and advancing, snorting at the burning Mitsubishi, arching up with fear. My mother, too old for fighting fires in the dark, said she gave up swinging her coat when she noticed a piece of my grandmother's sideboard, an ornate hacked-off corner. My grandmother's antiques had survived the passage from Coventry 90 years ago, but not the wrath of Cheryl Wells. Not even the bed where my mother, actually, her name is Sharon Wells in the novel, but in real life she was called Sharon, Cheryl Wells, and I've just told her real name. Um, <laughs> but it's fiction, it's all fiction. <laughs> but not the wrath of Sharon Wells. Not even the bed where my grandmother died with the book of shrubs on the pillow beside her. Then I saw the burnt rocking horse, my mother said. I imagine its silver mane and leather bridle incinerated. My grandmother rocked me on it as a boy, hers as a child in England, shipped out to what she coined these frightful antipodes. Your father's a sloven and a slut, my mother said, chasing after a hoon like Sharon. My father's name is Early, a family name. Better early than not at all, my mother used to say, but she doesn't say that anymore. He now lives five miles away in a sad-looking brick veneer, a coastal subdivision my mother's christened Bitter Snug, after she threw him off his own farm out of the big house and sentenced him to life with Elsie. So Elsie's, Elsie's his other girlfriend, but he has this woman in a cottage on the farm that used to be the house where his mother lived. Um, so then I'm going to read a little bit more, Dan, if that's okay, from where, when he arrives at the farm. Roll my bag along the bluestone path, a lump in my throat as I open the door, the vague smell of compost and frantic yelping, and I glimpse my mother in the dining room, alive and mobile, armed with a broom and fly swatter. As I enter, a brush-tailed possum scratches its way along the picture rail. It pisses with fright on the portrait of Aunt Emma Charlotte, then over the pastel as me of a, as a boy, the innocent eyes that were never quite mine. My mother doesn't notice me, mesmerized by the leaping dog and the hiss of the possum as it plummets to a corner table, smashing plates. It hurtles out past me through the open doors and into the warm Gippsland evening. My mother turns, hello, my boy, as if knowing I was here all along. How was your trip? She hoists the broom over her shoulder like a rifle. I give her a hug, but her body stiffens as if she's afraid it's something American. Did you get yourself an upgrade? She doesn't wait for an answer, already involved in a project in the kitchen bench, as if I'm a ghost that often appears. 
Still, I wonder how she's heard of upgrades. She's irrigating ants from a cupboard, wiping them up with an ant-speckled cloth. My mother slaughters armies of them, shows off piles of the dead to occasional visitors. Magpies and noisy miners fly down these chimneys seeking shade. The black and tan dog lies in wait to land them, land them stunned and breathless on the hardwood floor. On the silent television, the marsupial eyes of the new prime minister. And it goes on. <laughs> I, I thought I'd finish there. I'm finishing there as we have a new, a new prime minister. Of sorts. Uh, yeah, a great intro, and we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about some of those other characters. But the idea of home, mm-hmm. how many novels tell us you cannot go home again, uh, and how many times do we continue to try? Um, and I think that's a big part of, of Wedding Bush Road um, for our main character, Daniel, who gets kind of pulled back to uh, a, an amazing landscape uh, of, of horses and, 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 and all of that, but memory too, time and memory, and dealing with his aging mother, who's actually a great character, um, tender but a little bit of a hard ass, um, mm. as all mothers can be. The mother's uh, name in the novel is Ruthie. My mother's name was Judy, so that's totally unrelated. <laughs> Um, did you want to read the bit about the burnt-out car? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll, um, before I do, though, I'm just thinking about that whole going home thing, and I'm going there in a couple of days. Um, and this book is out in Australia at the same time, and my family will be reading it. Um, and it's funny, because I wrote it, you know, 8,000 miles from there, and not really thinking about the ramifications. And I foolishly did an interview uh, on Skype recently where I... Uh, was a little too revealing, um, but I thought it was. Oh, it'll be in the Sydney paper. They won't, you know, they won't see it. Well, it was syndicated in all the major newspapers, and it talks about, you know, my father being a philanderer and and all this stuff. And my father, you know, he's 86, um, and he he might be happy. He'd be delighted <laughs> in a in a Trumpian kind of way. Um, um, but it, and it's also interesting as a total non sequitur how this philandery, which is also uh, a theme in the book, how it permeates our lives like the you know the Clinton world and the Trump world and you know the the Andrew Weiner world and how and the male world and how and the and the and the impact of that on families and generations and not all men are like that some people I can look I see people out there who are married to men who aren't like that but there are a lot of men who who struggle with that in their different ways, and some of them acknowledge it and others don't. Um, so the story also tackles that. I'll read a bit about the... the well, well, and, and the, this idea of home that, mm. that you keep writing about. Um, the South African writer Lynn Freed gave a very good quote about this. She said, home for me was and remains, even now, even though it no longer exists, what I had left behind. Mm-hmm. And you think that's true. Well, I romanticize where I come from in a way, and I always think, well, if, you know, if the shit hits the fan here, there's always the farm. You know, and, and it's a great feeling to be earthed by that. I think part of me feels connected to the world, knowing that piece of land is there, and knowing I can go there, and knowing that my history is there. Because the farm I grew up on, grew up on has not only this big old house that we had, but we had a house near the city where we went to school, and my father moved that on... Tr- 
slice it up and put it on trucks and it's on another part of the farm and then my grandmother's house was also moved to the farm so my whole childhood is in these different houses on this same property and so I'm very connected to that land and I in writing this book I was for months and years sort of immersed in that place because I was writing about it and dreaming about it but when I go back there I realize that I I revert, as Daniel in the book does, this this sort of regression to who I was before I left, and that's 30 years ago. And I know many of us who come from other places experience that, this this vague desire to go home to where we belong. I mean, I see someone who recently went, thought they were going to go back and live in upstate New York, and went there and was there for a week and thought, fuck no, you know? and, and I'm like that. I go to Australia and I'm there for a week and it's heaven. It's so beautiful and, and the air is fresh and it's so calm. And then it begins to dawn on me, oh Lord, this is not my home. So I think at this stage it's the place where I'm from and LA, LA has become my home, I'm pleased to say. Do you want me to read that little bit? Yeah, let's, let's give them a, a sort of, uh, an idea of it. So this crazy woman on the farm has... Um, She's ensconced herself in this cottage and she got mad with the father and has burnt all his, his mother's antiques out on this car in the field um, as a way, in, in rage, as a way of getting back to, at him. And now Daniel goes out to sort of inspect this. The night he arrives, a dark hump in the grey light, the blackened frame of the car hunkered among charred remains, steel ash and wood. Thirty yards beyond it, the garden fence, the yard that was once tidy, now a carnival of corrugated iron engine parts. My grandmother grew hibiscus there, black-eyed peas and black-eyed Susan. The cottage door opens a crack, a woman's face, sun-worn, creased, smoker's cheeks and bright turquoise eyes, her hair a tangled, sun-bleached nest. Daniel, she asks, like she knows me, knew I was coming. Her nipples press at a long, red, cold-tizzled T-shirt that stretches down to bare, slender legs, what look like purple welts on her thighs. Excuse the mess. She clasps her shoulders and blames the boys, a maze of laundry on the floor, but no sign of boys, just the skunk smell of weed. In a kitchen I barely recognize, she offers herbal tea. I have to remind myself this woman lit a fire that could have burned a thousand acres in the town. But her eyes are strangely alluring. A blue glinting green reminds me of coral staring back too boldly. Sorry about the furniture, she says. Her hand shakes slightly as she plugs in the kettle. How old is she, 40? Australian years. All that sun and squinting. I kind of lost it with your father. I'm nodding, looking around to see what's left. The floorboards bare, stripped of linoleum. The kitchen where my grandmother baked her scones, the sun beaming in on her delicate English face. The Landlord and Tenant Act requires 24 hours notice for a visit from the landlord, Sharon announces, ballsy. I try to remember I'm a lawyer. I'm not your landlord. I don't look at her eyes as she pours hot water into my grandmother's pale green cups. I know, she says too easily, but I've been having trouble with your father. We've had trouble with him too, I say. Take a sip and scald my tongue. Serve me right for being disloyal. But we don't set things on fire. (laughs) She looks down at herself, the cotton clinging to her narrow body. It was self-defense, she says. He appears on a horse at the window at all hours. I rarely wear clothes in the house. According to my mother, he hasn't been on a horse in years. I believe he can barely walk, I say. He'd crawl if he had to early. He's at the bloody door at midnight, and when I don't answer, he pulls out my marijuana by the roots. (laughs) Why don't you let him inside? 
I imagine her tight-fitting jeans, his eyes out on sticks. He reckons he wants to move back in here, wants to die in his mother's house. Well, I want to die in his mother's house too. I feel the grim onset of jet lag. Ruthie owns this now, I tell her. I don't mention the whole 500 acres, house and all, are now in my mother's name since my father was banished. I scan the squalor, the sink of grotty plates angled precariously. No sign of Christmas here either. I walk into the bare living room. The Munnings is gone from above the fireplace. The faded print of horses being led back from the gallops with blankets over their loins. I love that picture. I've had him up to here, says Sharon, the roach in her nail-bitten fingers cutting across her throat. She watches me as if gauging loyalties, her blue-green eyes more defiant than tearful. Is she more angered by his unexpected visits or that he skulks no more? I'll take him to the tribunal if I have to, she says. You won't take him anywhere, I tell her. Walking back, I make out a frail shape in the dark. On the hill by the chicken coop, my mother's climbed the stile unassisted. Balancing on the dry breeze, wearing only her nightgown like a sheet above the fence. Hello, old girl. When I was a kid, she says, we used to ride our ponies bareback to help spot bushfires from up on Two Bays Road. She shields her eyes as if we're in broad daylight, goes to step over the wire but stops. I was a damn good firefighter, she adds. A sudden desire to defend the dignity of this old woman. She stands up in the dark like something immortal, Eleanor of Aquitaine. You're the reason I stay alive, she says, then boldly steps down to the ground. She walks on ahead through the wood ships by the chopping stump, leaves me split in pieces of my own. The part that yearns to be here with her always, and the part that longs to lose myself in cities far away. Poor Daniel. <laughs> Quite a holiday trip he's having. Um, so we're getting a very good sense, I uh, hope you guys are, of, of, of kind of the, the journey of the novel for, for this lawyer who has to return and deal with. Um, initially, aging parents, once we get there, we see how much uh, more kind of difficulties are going on. Um, but let's talk about the collection of voices in the novel, because I think that's one of the most interesting things about this novel as well, besides the, the, these characters and the location. The book is mainly narrated by Daniel, but you chose to weave in other voices. Um, people we meet in the town um, and, and, and the like, so that kind of really expands the story, I thought, in really interesting ways. Um, we've heard all about Sharon. Mm -hmm. um, I used the right name, right? Yeah. Okay, can't sue me, sue him. Um, the very sexy tenant on land. Um, but it turns out she has a son. Um, and what I thought was so interesting about Reggie was that he was almost a mirror image of our main character. If Daniel had not escaped and become a lawyer and, 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 and went to Los Angeles, um, perhaps he too would be using ropes as belts and living in the trees. <laughs> hmm. Um, well, uh, this Sharon woman has, has a son, it's true, and his name's Reggie. And what happened was this novel um, was just a short story that was published, I think, in the Harvard Review and maybe b um, Best Australian Stories. And I thought that was it. And then I suddenly heard this other voice. And only recently have I realized that this other character is sort of a, the, the feral part of myself. Mm. Um, you which, heard it here first. Which, you know, which I deal with. 
a day at a time um, in therapy and whatnot. And, um, and I heard this very distinct voice. And, you know, they tell you never to write in the first person present in all these writing classes, but then really never to write different voices in the first person present. But that's what I've done, and the voices, I hope, are distinct enough that you can feel the, the shift in, in voice and tone and hear a, a different perspective. And what happened was, as I wrote from these other perspectives, it would sort of cup the story forward. And, uh, you know, there were maybe five, four or five different points of view um, in, the, in the novel. Hmm. Um, and I can... I can read a little bit of that if you would like. Well, certainly, but let's, let's talk more about right, these let's. two characters who are kind of circling one of another mm -hmm. all throughout. Mm -hmm. And I think they, they don't get along mm -hmm. initially mm -hmm. because of that's what they see in the other, mm -hmm. the, the road not traveled. Yeah, well, I mean, Reggie is a boy who has grown up in an isolated part of the, the country with a, a mother who is absent and a father who is kind of a cattle rustler and in really rough circumstances. And... Thinking politically again, you know, he's someone who hasn't had the benefit of education and, um, and there is that divide in Australia. And you can hear my accent now compared with reading some of the other characters and that's a little bit of a, a socioeconomic thing in Australia. Here, accents are more regional, whereas in Australia they're more socioeconomic. So the way I speak with a, a more rounded vowels, you know, it's, it's a total affectation, obviously, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but is 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 a, a different experience than Reggie's, um, and it's only recently that I've learnt that this you know, these other characters, even though I don't think of them as such, or I didn't think of them as such as I wrote them, they really represent different aspects of my own personality. But not to psychoanalyze the novel, because my therapist read the novel a couple of months ago, um, and she went through it and she took notes, and she was very. Um, Please, that there were fewer references to nipples than in my prior novel. <laughs> she counted nine references to nipple in, nipples in Stray Dog Winter, wow. and she thought my relationship with breasts had become more intimate, <laughs> which is kind of odd for a gay guy. Anyway, I, I kind of um, want to check my notes. I think I cut ten nipples, but I'm not sure. Oh, really? I'm maybe sure. maybe Dan cut them all out. Maybe it's deteriorated. You're welcome, David. <laughs> we'll talk about the editing process later. <laughs> Is it more difficult for you to construct a novel when these other voices show up? Does that intrigue you? Does it make you crazy? Do you feel inspired or schizophrenic? Or um, well, I feel f a little bit, um, you know, multiple personalityed. But I write totally organically. So if if that voice appeared, that's what I was going to give a shot. So I wrote that voice and saw what it was, and it took on a life, and then. I would write another voice. I don't, you know, I'm not someone who thinks about what this is going to be or how it's going to work or structure. I just write, and the writing reveals itself, and I, I love Annie Dillard's book, The Writing Life, which really talks about writing from bold cell to twig to bowl or to bough to branch to tree, you know, just following the thread of the words and letting one sentence um, inform the next. And... Um, and, you know, that's a whole Les Plesko discussion, and that's where I, I learned to write, but we can talk about that also. Okay. Um, but I have to say that writing from different points of view was fun. I hadn't done it before, and I was hearing these voices, and, you know, I hear voices. What can I do? Yeah. <laughs> well, introduce us to Reggie, because okay. he's quite... So Reggie um, is up in Daniel's... Uh, 
luggage pretty early on and Reggie lives up in the roof there's a hole in the roof because the house is falling to bits a bit they fix that in the um in that real house the room where I stay when I go back to the farm is called the senator's room because it was used for uh, a television show called something in the air that was about a cross-dressing senator who lived in this big old country house um so it was, it was all sort of furnished with the tv um stuff which was good it was better than what was there before but there was a hole in the there was a hole in the um, plaster that was always sort of intrigued me, and there's a whole world that goes on up in the roof of that house because it has, I think, maybe eight eight chimneys. So there are a lot of you know all the bedrooms have chimneys, and 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 so it's always intrigued me. So this boy lives up in the roof. He's kind of lives in trees and roofs, and it's gone kind of um, native, even though we're not allowed to say that. So Reggie's in his luggage. Travel bits and soft clothes, chamomile or cashier, whatever they call it. Smooth as lamb, it makes no sense in this heat. I prefer the feel of sun and keep my dirt shoes. I reckon I can feel where water flows underneath. Artesian, Walker calls it, Walker's his father. Reckons I could be a diviner if I wanted. But he reckons too many things and I'm glad to be away from all the rustling, the things he makes me do. Dig deep and pull up shiny white headphones. They say beats music. Probably cost a hundred. And who got a hundred here to spare but Ruthie hidden in a linen cupboard safe? I reckon she knows I take my share. It's not so much, because I can live on about 30 a week. I get my snacks from fridges. She even leaves me some food in the boot room. Nice gold pen, though, different. Heavy with a point shape like a violin. And unscrews. Oh, look, and dribbles. Parks a little blue turd on his pants. They're lucky they dark. Wipe my fingers on my face and see what else. A hard thing down the bottom, wrapped in a shirt. I pull it up slow, a silver frame photo of a girl. His rich city one. Smooth skin and black colour hair. Earrings like a movie star. Spanish, maybe. Probably famous. A model girl. The one he had on the phone, maybe. Who makes him laugh and then looks sad. Do a freeze for footsteps, head up to my ceiling hole. Can't be early, saw him gone. When I asked if Sharon called him early because he comes too soon, she said he's too old to come at all, but she didn't think it was funny. Need to be quick and hitch up this big white cupboard, shim my way through this cobwebs, get back safe. But I got even better this time. Put on my big new headphones, press play, listen to some weird guitar, and jerk myself to Danny's girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I we've all my, been there. We've all been there. <laughs> I jerk myself to Danny's girl. I'm sorry. I'm glad this isn't a karaoke night, aren't you? <laughs> um, so let's let's jump ahead because you'd mentioned some of your influences. Right. Um, let's talk about what it was like for you to write this novel, which mm. is quite different from anything you've done before. Your last book was set in Moscow in the '80s, and this about an Australian lawyer living in Los Angeles who flies back to the horse farm where he was raised. Quite a departure. Um, well, um, I mean, I've, this is my third novel and each of them has um, an Australian part of the story. And so uh, the new book I'm working on now is totally Californian, but my first novel was set in the 1930s in Australia and a little bit on the eastern shore of Maryland and a little bit out here between the 30s and the 50s. And it was in, it was very, very spare um, and it was called Agapanthus Tango in various places and then it was published here as the Great Inland Sea. And I, 
I kind of stumbled into a writing class at UCLA uh, with a guy called Les Plesko, who is sadly no longer with us, who a number of us here worked with. And um, he, he influenced that book, and it's in, in a style that I love. It's not madly commercial, mm. um, but I, I feel very comfortable with, with less, less is more, and that what's, what's between the lines is almost as interesting as what's on the page. Um, and I'm very, I'm very fond of that book, I have to say. And my second novel is set between suburban Australia and Cold War Moscow, between the 60s and the 80s. And that book kind of wrote me through my, through my 20s, maybe, in a, in a different way. And it's, it's about a gay guy in Moscow, and it's a totally different thing. It's kind of a literary mystery, which was written totally organically, which I would, would never recommend writing a mystery, like an emotional love story mystery thriller without having any idea where it's going. But the reality is, because I had no idea where it's going, the reader doesn't know where it's going either, so it's not all bad. And so this novel, uh, Wedding Bush Road, is... is set in very familiar territory for me. Um, it's a place I know um, and a place I see very clearly. So it was, in a way, less of a stretch than writing about Cold War Moscow, where I'd been, but only for a month. And the novel was set in the winter, and I was there in the summer. Um, so it was a fairly audacious novel, um, whereas this, is, this was... This was fun. I wrote it in my little writing group. I would bring pages each week, and it kept unfolding. Hi, Rita Williams. Jul Julianne Otali isn't here, sadly, um, and Janet Fitch is out of town with her the film of her novel, um, which is called Painted Black, um, Pimping My Friends. And I'm also reading um, Marissa Silva's beautiful novel um, called Little Nothing, which is gorgeous, um, just to say. Um, um, and so this book is not as spare, um, perhaps a little more commercial, who knows, um, and it, it's maybe a little less influenced by Les, but there's still a lot of, of the, the rhythms and the, and that's what I care about. I care about the musicality and the rhythm and the, the feel and the, the being able to inhabit a story. And as a writer, that's what I want to do. And as a reader, I want to be able to do that. And, and I hope I've accomplished that to some degree here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason some of you have uh, no stopping train, um, as an honor t to Les, um, his, the last, his last work uh, is a novel called No Stopping Train. So everyone here tonight who buys a copy of Wedding Bush Road uh, gets a free copy of, of Les's final novel, just so you can see uh, the musicality that David was speaking of. Because um, I, think, I think there is a direct relationship that's really interesting. For and reader. also another thank you to CounterPoint for publishing Les posthumously, a novel that never found a home during his lifetime, um, um, has found one when we no longer have him around. Yeah, that's, that's very sad. Um, so when you were writing Wedding Bush Road, uh, what surprised you? What were the discoveries? That the character uh, was in love with a woman. <laughs> very modern. Um, <laughs> um, well, while I was writing this book, I had... Um, 
I met this woman who is a friend of mine, her name's Karen, and she's David Foster Wallace's widow, and we sort of fell madly in love in this weird way, and I didn't know what to do with that, and was sort of exploring that possibility, and, and she had said, you know, since David died, there's no one I've really been attracted to except you, and of course you're gay, and I said, you know, I'm totally gay, but I'm mad about you, what are we going to do? <laughs> anyway, so we sort of fostered this thing in some confusion, and so I sort of started writing about that possibility, and then I had um, Isabel, the girlfriend, who, he, who goes to... Esalen, um, and Kaz Love, my friend, who's, who originally made this dress that I've bastardized with bits from the book and whatnot, um, which was part of an installation, um, who lives at Esalen, and I always steal her art from my novels. Um, she um, lives, she's up there, she goes on a yoga retreat while he goes to um, Australia. So she's kind of you-hoo, woo-woo, and, um, <laughs> and what and she's Venezuelan. She's part Dutch, part Venezuelan. And I had the Ven when I lived in Paris. It sounds so pretentious. I was lucky enough to have a um, a writing fellowship to Paris for nine months, one year, sent by the Australians. And um, I had this Venezuelan boyfriend um, whose name was Manuel, but he became Marion oddly after <laughs> after we split up. So um, th these two sort of events surprised me, and I started writing. Everything okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, this is what I was talking about in the newspaper in Australia. My, I, I might just say that's all over the um, press. But um, so that was that sort of spawned this whole possibility of writing about uh, a heterosexual relationship, and this whole thing about f uh, fidelity, where he finds himself back where he comes from and struggling with that, and being weirdly attracted to this earthy, strange kind of vaguely nasty woman on the farm and um, and what does that mean you know and and this struggle that he sees oh my god you know I I've spent my whole life trying not to be my father and here I am tending towards my father's behavior and also the thought of being with someone who his father's been with is also you know mm. fairly unappealing yeah gets a little dark in the abstract yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, should we Move on to the process, the editorial. We can process. go wherever you wherever yeah. you want. Shall we go on the road, not travel? <laughs> um, since I'm David's editor, I suppose at some point we should discuss the editorial process. <laughs> um, but it was so easy and perfect. I don't know if we need to do that, David. Well, let me tell you. Um, I think it was. You. Were you the one who said you have to dis to destroy to create? No, I think that was you. <laughs> That doesn't sound like me at all. Um, so Dan bought my book, which was very community-spirited. Um, he, did, he did say he would... Oh, is that, is that thing there? Um, he said he would buy my book if I gave him a red Jeep like mine. Um, and somewhere here is, is, the, is the gift. But I'll, I'll get that to you soon. Um, and I thought the book was in pretty good shape. Um, and you know, other writer friends had had said it's 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 okay. So <laughs> I um, sent it to uh, to Counterpoint, and you know we know each other quite well. So there's that terrible thing. Like De Dan is thinking, oh fuck, what if I hate it? You know, I mean David's my friend, and oh look what's coming. Oh, what's your name? Emmanuel. Hi, Emmanuel. This is my daughter, Emmanuel. This is oh. for. This is for. Um, that's for me. <laughs> that's for. 
That's for you. Where That's your red the Jeep. Jeep. Oh my Thank God. you, Emmanuel. Finally. Um, so there we go. What are you going to do with that? It's a little small. <laughs> it's a little small, Dave. And he bought and he brought me a pony for my birthday. Um, well, this is what's great about the LA literary community. We've had a stuffed horse sitting between us for about the last hour, and no one's and mentioned it. You guys anything. didn't flinch. <laughs> you guys didn't blink or ask. Um, but so he got the book, and he said he gave me some some general notes. And I'm not big on talking about the work with someone. I'm, I'll listen and I'll take what I like and screw the rest. But he said. I don't think the girlfriend, Isabel, should come to the farm. And this is two, about two-thirds through the book. This woman appears. She knows that things are going strangely down on the farm, and she decides to go and visit and find out what's going on. So she leaves Esalen, flies out from San Francisco to Australia, rents a car, and appeared on the, appeared on the farm. And then the rest of the novel is dealing with this um, juxtaposition of this sophisticated um, American ish woman and this Reggie character and Daniel who sort of reverted to who he was and um, my editor who shall remain nameless said I think that that doesn't resolve Daniel's challenge about going home and what the book's really about and I don't really think about theme as I'm writing and theme reveals itself in the editing process and in Q&A's with audiences and in interviews um, which I don't mind you know I have to pretend oh yeah that's what it's about mm-hmm um, <laughs> So my agent was like, no, do not touch it. Do not do, go there. And then some other people were really um, telling me not to do it. But I sort of sat with it, and I find in the editing process where there is something that's being questioned, there's something to be looked at. So I looked at it, and I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And, um, and I did, and I went to Florida. And we didn't talk about it much. I went to Florida, and... Um, with a friend who's dying from pancreatic cancer, and I sat with her, and for three weeks I just reworked the book in a way that I've never written, you know, seven or eight hours a day, which I never get a chance to do, really. And um, I wrote, rewrote the ending. In fact, I rewrote quite a lot, and I, th I really strongly believe it's for the best, so I thank you for that, Dan, as much as I hate well, you. <laughs> they all say that. But it, it is about, uh, the process is about decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you want to do? How did you want your reader to feel? And I think that there was something compromised in our main character's journey by and having her appear on the doorstep. And I don't think about the reader, um, which is probably why, I, you know, why you have an editor, but I'm more interested in how I feel and how I respond to it. And, and I responded to the changes in a way that I felt resonated differently, and it's shorter and I think it's, you know, there was this whole New Guinea business that was a whole... Um, That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, that was a big cut. Yes. I totally forgot about that. That was the one. other thing, which was very personal. And he, was, he said, oh, that's a bit sentimental, that part. Like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so, I mean, it's an interesting process to just sit with things and then think about, okay, maybe, maybe there's something to that. And just going back in, and I'm, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to work. I want to write mm -hmm. and be in it and let, let it reveal itself and it reveal itself in a way that I th is cool. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm happy with this, good. despite you. Good, good, good. Um, one little thing I, I was hoping we could address is your opening quote of the book. Um, which I think takes on a little bit of a different feeling now. 
So the opening quote in the, in the novel is, and I hear the far off field say things I cannot bear without a friend. And that's a Rilke quote. Um, and it's something about if I was going home now, this week, with a partner to experience that in a different way, it would be a totally different experience. And if Daniel in the novel had gone back with Isabel, it would have gone very differently. Um, but he doesn't do that. And, and I'm interested to, th to hear what, why you think that resonates differently now. Because I think it speaks to the idea of community mm -hmm. without a friend. Mm -hmm. Which I think speaks to the novel. I think it speaks to your work with mm -hmm. Penn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt, I just felt, you know, coming here, it just felt more powerful than before. Well, um, in the context of what's going on, I think communities become, you're right, uh, amazingly uh, important. And I, I mean, I, you, I've been having conversations with strangers in elevators and at the supermarket, and uh, there's this, and my friends, I sort of suddenly care about them. I mean, not un <laughs> not, un not unduly, but um, but you know, I mean, there's this this there's this there's this like connection that oh, I mean, the the communication in the community is really is really more important than I realized, and and sacred, and I mean, we're very lucky to be in LA, um, in this sort of other country, and we're so far, and but and we're lucky to have places like this to come to, and um, I mean, I look out and see all these people, and there's all this cross-pollination of people who know each other in different ways, and, and the community of writing, and writing as a way of feeling connected to the world and myself, and maybe, you know, I've been on panels with, I was up at the uh, Litquake in San Francisco, and I was on a panel with some weird woman from Romania, and someone from a French writer who had a translator, it was totally bizarre, but the person from Romania inherently writes political stuff. And we have the luxury of writing our own little weird stories. But I think now we might be compelled to have a more conscious literary um, tone and, and theme to our work. And I think maybe that's not such a bad thing. But I just want to write my own weird little stories, basically. But um, maybe there's some nonfiction work to be done. And I think we obviously, in the, in the freedom to write, mode be really able and willing to write what we need what needs to be heard and not afraid because we may we may have a serious struggle ahead and you know Penn Center USA is here as part of a community to foster that and nurture that and and so is Skylight I'll just might talk about the, the dress. So the dress that's hanging from there, if you want to get up and move around a bit, it's fine. Um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the dress. So this dress was part of an installation done by my friend Kaz Love um, many years ago, 15 years ago, and there were a whole bunch of them. And this was one I had, and it was sort of a little bit falling to bits, so I had it re... My friend Jeffrey and I re-inhabited it last night. And it has some themes from the book and some... And a picture, I can see a picture of Les Plesco, and some pictures of the farm and pictures of wedding bush, which is... You know what a wedding bush is, right? In Australia, um, before you get married, um, you you go and have a procedure. It's not it's not a Brazilian. It's more of a, a like ber vertical fluffing that happens. In, no, that's not it. It's um, <laughs> it's um, it's um a 
it's an unusual native plant that grows on the farm I come from that's a wedding bush. It's very pretty and it's, it, it's, it's sometimes, it, sorry, that was totally sexist and wrong. Um, I'm blushing. So you should be. So, so in, in the novel, these dresses appear a couple of times in, his, in memory and with him and Isabel, they see them up in, um, in Big Sur. And I'm just going to read a couple of very, very, very short um, paragraphs that include the, the, the dress motif and then we'll go to a quick Q&A and then we can eat and um, those of you who want to can escape. Um, what I do when it gets boring is I go to the poetry section and I read Sharon Olds and, and Merwin and Bukowski, it's all there. Um, so this is in Daniel's voice. Um, in, in remembering. Near Big Sur, Isabel spied a tree in the distance, a giant, ancient cypress full of color. As we walked down the path toward it, we realized it was ornamented with bright vintage dresses, blues and pinks and yellows, hanging from branches and rippling in the wind. They were pinned with prayers and dreams, hundreds of them, written on old-fashioned cardboard luggage tags. She wrote and pinned some of her own, and I envied her, attaching a prayer to a tree, believing it might be answered. You never know, she said as though it might be that simple. And then this is in Isabel's voice later on. She's still up, because of Dan, she's still up north. Because she wasn't allowed to go to Australia, but that's okay, I don't mind. <laughs> then on the drive back, she's driving back from Monterey to Big Sur. Then on the drive back, in the spray of headlights, I noticed that tree by the road where those vintage dresses were hung with prayers pinned to them, where Daniel stopped the car and we walked down. But the branches of the tree were now strung with Christmas lights and wedding gowns, writhing white in the dark, blowing out towards the cliffs. Some had ripped free. I watched what looked like a veil fly up into the rain. Then a giant deer crossed the road in front of me, stood in the middle of the blacktop in the dark, and stared right into me as if it was a warning. So this, this dress, these dresses appear and then uh, uh, again later on. So if anyone wants to, after they buy a book and have some cake, they can circle around and, and pin, pin a something on the dress or write a something on the dress um, or um, make a prayer or a wish or, a, or an anything. And now let's open it up to um, some questions. quick, profound questions. Um, if you want to um, do that, please try and frame it in the form of a question. <laughs> Um, um, yes. Okay. Uh, your first book, uh, The Wild Inland Sea. The Great Inland Sea. I love that book. And the first image of the mother with the bit in her mouth mm -hmm. uh, fastened to the bed, mm -hmm. I thought that would, I thought, well, I'm going to read this book. You know. Did you ever think? That the end, at the ending, that he was going to do that to his father. Was that ever a thought? Or I can't remember what he did to his father. He came back and he took care of it. Oh yeah, no, had no idea. No, God no. I was in a class with Les Plesko and I was just writing these funny little scenes. And I, the, the exercise was in this UCLA extension class: put yourself in a room and write what you see. And I saw my character kneeling on a tile veranda, on a bluestone sill, looking through a window, seeing this woman in a high-sided bed. Um, and she was strapped into it. And I'd been back to Australia, and my grandmother had had some kind of stroke or something. And I was, so I seemed to be looking after her. Um, 
And she, she, was, she was strapped in a bed like that. And I always remember that, her struggling through the night and delirious. And so the mother, which is based on my gr- grandmother's and great-grandmother's stories a little bit, that image really stuck with me. Um, in fact, my grandmother died falling out of a, one of those beds. Hmm. And at that time, I was in New York doing horse stuff years ago, and I woke up in my, out of my deep sleep and thought, oh my God, Guggy, that was her name. And it was right as far as I could work out when she had, made, had fallen that way, that sort of weird stuff that happens. Um, any other questions? Is there a Reggie? In my life? Um, there... Um, <laughs> people seem to laugh like they know too much. Um, After reading that article, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, there was a Reggie in me, and um, um, and there's. It's, I realized later. Yes, there are. There is a Reggie. There are a few Reggies in my life. Yeah, um, indeed, there are. And that's all I'll say at this particular juncture. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good question. Good question. Lois Jones, who does Poets Corner on KPFK, and is a wonderful, wonderful poet. Um, well, I love poetry. I mean, I read poetry maybe almost more than I read fiction. Um, and if I want to get into the groove into a groove to write, I will read uh, poetry um, because what I'm interested in is poetic, lyrical language. And so um, poetry is really important. And I love you folks who who keep writing poetry. Um, And I had my first poem published in The Rattling Wall, which is Michelle's pen, um, umbrellaed, um, wonderful magazine. so yeah, I mean, I feel like if I get when I get old and really and dottier, and I'm sitting in a room somewhere, and I might write more poetry. I love I love poetry, and I'll steal an image or a, a word from a poem. Like something will spark something that will really be useful, and maybe will live in my subconscious. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night and start writing something based on something I've read. I've, poetry has a a resonance for me that I'm and Michelle Myring is also a poet has a resonance for me that is is. Um, Incomparable. Hmm. Any others? Marissa? Marissa Silva? Yeah, you started out talking about how you were a right here and that this is what you felt like And I'm sort of, it made me wonder, and I don't know if you've had this because you I don't know if you wrote when you were doing much writing, but oh. do you feel like writing about people from afar is a very different experience? Totally. I mean, I, I mean, I see Steve Toltz there. I mean, who is now here, but um, has written about all sorts of places from Australia, and now is writing from here. I, um, I would never have written had I stayed in Australia. I don't think. Um, and I, if I wrote in Australia, I might write about elsewhere. I don't know. But it's a way for me to come to terms with a childhood and a family and an experience, to write through it somehow. So I I know it's not very de rigueur to talk about writing as a kind of therapeutic process, but at some level I think for all of us it is, whether we're aware of it or not. And for me it certainly is. And um, through the lens of distance, I think I'm able to see it clearly and... 
um, inhabited in a way that I would never have been able to had I stayed there. And, you know, I came here in the 80s riding jumping horses back east, and I had never written anything except I'd spent time with my 98-year-old grandmother when she was blind, and she told me her stories of growing up in the 1880s in the outback, and I always thought, one day I will write that stuff, and it took me 15 years to to write. Um, And it was when I was in therapy talking about, you know, what do I really want to do, and I secretly wanted to write, and I just was never brave enough to do it because... I was afraid I wouldn't be, you know, good enough or something, and so I, I started just doing morning pages and writing, um, and you know that unfolded into my first novel. And um, I'm very grateful to, I'm very grateful to have ended up here in a place where it's fun to write, and I have fun friends to write with, and it feels supportive. Like New York is great, but it feels a little more cutthroat and scary there. Here, it's <laughs> I feel embraced by a lot of you here. Yes, Dinah. Also a counterpoint author, Dinah Lenny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to know if you were always a reader, and if that was why you wanted to write. And I also, um, part two of that question is, what about memoir? It seems to me you're talking about having mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. fiction. What about I kind of write embellished memoir under the guise of fiction because you can really tell the truth in a way that in memoir feels dangerous and um, more fraught with um, problems. I mean, this might be problematic enough. But everything I write is a... is. I mean, maybe it's a narcissistic, self-involved thing, but it is some way of me trying to find out, I think someone famous said, I write to find out what I think about things. Not Joyce Carol Oates, but Joan Didion. And, and I really, that really resonates for me. Um, like, I'm exploring something, like who am I in the world? How do I relate to people? How does this character relate to me? How does that part of me that's represented in this character relate to maybe another part of me or another, another aspect or another character? That's what interests me. And um, so that's, that's what I do. And I do rely on memoir, but I rely on like little bits of memory will spark something and a, a scene will evolve from that. So it's not very... You really need to tell the story as it happened to you. That's so far. No, I like to make it far more glamorous or far more um, scary. <laughs> um, I mean, I had a weird enough childhood that I, I, I have lots to draw on. And I've done that here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't feel the need to write a memoir at this stage. I'm much too young, turning 58 today. <laughs> yes, there's a cake. Um, um, on, on that note, I think we should, we should stop. And um, um, if anyone wants to buy a book and have, have it signed, um, line up here, and then there'll be food and cake coming right. in any wine second. And cheese, wine and cheese and everything. eat and talk to each other. To to listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.